This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Raiders of the Lost Childhood Edition. It's Wednesday, November 30th. 2022 on today's show, The Fablemans is an autobiopic. I'm surprised to find that word is in my spell check. It's an autobiopic from Steven Spielberg. The legendary director has given us an intimate reminiscence of his childhood. This uh, stars Gabriel LaBelle as the adolescent Stephen and Michelle Williams as his extraordinary but possibly broken mother, maybe, maybe not broken mother. And then a new Hulu show, Welcome to Chippendales, gives us the much-needed origin story of the male strip club, story of intrigue, double-dealing, drug abuse, uh, some uh, murder thrown in. It stars Kumail Nanjiani as the franchise's up-by-his-own-bootstraps founder. And finally, we talk Tay again. Not not really, not really. But in angering her fans, Monopoly price gouger Ticketmaster may have finally bitten off more than it can chew. Joining me today is Sam Adams, who is a a treasured writer and editor for Slate. Uh, Sam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Always a huge pleasure. And of course, Dana Stevens is the uh, film critic for Slate and now most famously the uh, author of this episode's title, wonderful title. (laughs) That'll be on my tombstone. She wrote a good title once. <laughs> Hi Steve. Hi Sam. How many people can say that? Even really, <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. That is true. Uh, let's dig in. Uh, Steven Spielberg is forever in the pantheon uh, for the string of films he made as a wunderkind director in the 1970s and 80s. I mean, you know, do I even need to name them? Right? Jaws is the first blockbuster. Close Encounters, uh, to my mind, the greatest American Hollywood movie ever made. E.T. Of course, just on and on up through Schindler's List. Catch Me If You Can. The Jurassic Park. Uh, films underneath all the escapism and the social importance has always been an achingly personal filmmaker. He's he's kind of played a little bit of peekaboo with that over the years. Well, he has now made a movie that shows us directly both the origins of his love of film and its escapist possibilities, and that from which he maybe tried to escape but never quite did. The nuclear family that was abundant in love emotional safety, imagination, but also secrets and heartbreak. Uh, the movie is co-written by the playwright Tony Kushner. Okay, we're, we're going to hear a clip. In the movie, the young Spielberg is called Sammy, Sammy Fableman. Uh, we're going to hear Sammy's father, played wonderfully by Paul Dano, ask his son to compile footage from a recent family vacation and turn it into a home movie. The two of them are perpetually at odds over whether... His filmmaking is just a hobby or a serious possible vocation. Let's listen to the clip. I want you to make a camping trip movie. You can learn how the editing machine works while you do this. It'll make your mom feel better. Yeah. That last night when she danced in the headlights, that'd be great. Get to it tomorrow, okay? Um, tomorrow's when we start shooting. <laughs> Escape to nowhere. We're shooting all weekend. Shooting Dad, this weekend. We got like forty guys coming to be in the movie. I'll, I'll work on all the camping trips on Monday. I'm asking you to do this now for your mom. Yeah, She's... and I said that I will, just not tomorrow. Please. Don't be selfish. She just lost her mother. That's more important than your hobby. Dad, can you stop calling it a hobby? It'll cheer her up watching this. It's something we can her do. Her mom to, just to... died. It's, it's not, was that going to cheer her up? Because you made it for her. Dana, let me, let me start with you. I think a very important detail in that clip is the music you hear in the background isn't, in some sense, the soundtrack or score of the film. It's, it's the Spielberg figure's mother, played by Michelle Williams, playing the piano on the first floor of the house. She pervades this movie. It's it's in many ways as much or more a movie about her and her influence on his life. Uh, what do you make of this film? I mean, I have so much to say about it that I'll limit my first uh, response to just saying I really want to send people, even if they're resistant to this movie based on 
you know, preconceptions about what a Spielberg uh, auto biopic might be like, or the trailer, which I agree, having come across the trailer many times in the past few months, that the trailer misrepresents the movie as something that it's not. So this is not a kind of sappy, nostalgic ode to young Spielberg's love for cinema and and love for his family. And there is lots of love for cinema and love for his family members in the movie. But maybe because of the the Kushner collaboration and Kushner and Spielberg have a, a history going way back of collaborating on screenplays, there's something much darker that comes in. And the, what most impressed me about this movie, I think, and it's one of my favorite movies of the year so far, is is the extent to which the screenplay allows in critique of Spielberg and critique of his way of making movies and that there's a mm. lot of thinking about filmmaking and the moral responsibilities of the filmmaker uh, woven into the screenplay. And I don't want to spoil exactly how that gets woven in, but that to me was the most surprising and the strongest part of this movie. Yeah, I think uh, Sam, uh, Dane is really getting at something here. That There is something to that. I mean, Omens, you could argue that Everything about this movie is in the discrepancy between it and its trailer. It, it's it's really about how nostalgia and love really are are very different or can be very different things. What do you make of Spielberg giving this to us? Well, I mean, I think uh, I agree with what Dan is saying, and I would really praise kind of above all with this movie, the screenplay, which is uh, co-written first by Spielberg, which is the first movie that he's had his name on as a writer since AI, um, and Tony Kushner, who has written a lot of his best movies in recent years. I, you know, I feel like that is woven into almost every scene, and I also feel like in a lot of those scenes, I feel Spielberg, the director, kind of pulling his punches and not really getting to the heart of this. And I saw this movie um, first at the world premiere at the Toronto Film Festival, which kind of, uh, back in September, which kind of gives you an idea of the sort of two roads it's trying to walk at the at the same time because Spielberg doesn't make film festival movies he makes sort of you know big blockbusters but he's trying to do kind of a smaller boutiquier more personal thing here and he's kind of doing it and kind of not fully willing to do it uh I was really put off by uh Michelle Williams performance um, which I, I feel is just really kind of like overstated I think she was she's like one of the greatest actors of her generation. Um, and I think what she's doing in this movie is just way off and like not what I want to see from her at all. So I think um, that scene that we just heard is a great moment in the movie where uh, Spielberg is, um, his character is kind of assembling footage from the camping trip and uncovers this sort of family secret, which is apparently is based on a real event. Uh, but it also feels you know, extremely like a scene out of uh, Brian De Palma movie, especially like Blowout. His character even reminds me a little like Keith Gordon in Dress to Kill. Um, and those those movies are kind of all about like sort of guilt and and really, you know, the filmmaker is, is kind of a voyeur, that being an inherently suspect thing. And I feel like this movie kind of wants to say that and kind of, you know, veers away from it a little bit. And I don't think it implicates its its hero as much as it should mm, i that's interesting i mean there's so much to unpack but let let me start maybe with michelle williams which is um i do think you're not gonna you know connect with or 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 lose yourself to this movie uh unless you lose yourself first to her performance and in the trailer i, I given the trailer i went in expecting the very worst and actually came out um, completely in love with that character and that performance. But I certainly have no trouble seeing why someone might go the other way. Um, but it's her it's her movie, and it's really... What I love about the film is that it is, it is a biopic rooted in an actual set of lived, lived and deeply felt experiences. And for Spielberg, so much of the magic of life actually comes... The, both the danger and the magic of life comes from the mid-century nuclear family, right? Which both cosseted and scaffolded and imprisoned and suffocated. Uh, and he can handle that balance, but it also cohered and broke apart in ways that completely defined him as a human being because it was idyllic. And I believe, I believe the pastoral of that nuclear family. And I also believe that what, broke it apart was the moving around of the father and, you know, various things that I don't want to disclose that, that, that um, one learns about the mother. But 
Um, so to me, it was an emotionally real film, and it captured something that I think filmmakers often have trouble with, which is the mystery of having parents whose existence gave rise to yours completely, but also preceded yours in an abundant and, and, and essentially undisclosed ways, right? Like they're, you will never fully know what they were like until the moment when you arrived. And there is a way in which now I know as a parent, you, a part of you freezes in place at the moment your first child arrives. And it's kind of unfreezing that mystery or, or, or attempting to, to deepen the sense of connection by kind of breaking down that mystery. And I like Dana that he kept intact it was both a closeness and a distance that I really respected, that, that, that something very deep and profound was going on with his mother. And in those hidden spaces arose the woman who gave him his devotion to imagination and storytelling. But, um, and I, I like that he attempted to understand it without, in some ways, violating its essential dignity, which was, it was her experience and not his. It's not a plaything. It's not a CGI dinosaur. Um, I thought this was a very human and very heartfelt film, um, and it avoided much of the pomp and self-regard that I, not all of it, but, but a substantial amount of the pomp and the self-regard um, of a building's roman of like, here's what went into the making of the man who could make Jaws at the age of 20 or whatever, 15, whatever. He was super young. Um, I connected with, what did you think of Michelle Williams in the, in the film specifically? Well, now I want to have a sidebar with Sam. I want to confer with him over bourbon about specifically actually watch the movie with him so that we can specifically take apart her performance because I thought she was what made the movie. But I definitely agree that it's a performance that goes to some uncomfortable places. I mean, this is, again, what impressed me so much about this movie is that what could have been a Valentine to cinema, a Valentine to his beloved mother who died at age 97, you know, in the past, within the past decade. In fact, both of his parents have now passed, Spielberg's parents have, um, at quite elderly ages, which I think has finally freed him to make this movie about Mm -hmm. them, which is loving, but also definitely shows, you know, the rough edges of his family. I mean, the portrait that Michelle Williams creates is so complex. I get into this in my my review of of Fablemans for Slate, but, you know, do we, is she a good parent? Is she a bad parent? Does that matter? She's something of a narcissist. She is, as you said, Stephen, a frustrated concert pianist who never had a career because she's bringing up these four kids. And, you know, there's a side of her that is this um, angry 1950s boomer era housewife who doesn't want to be tied down. She eats, she serves all their meals on paper plates so that she doesn't have to do the dishes. She's established as this kind of free spirit who is lovable and eccentric, but also a narcissist. And she's just so fascinatingly complex. And to me, the heart of the movie, and I can't get too into it without spoilers, but there's a shot of just her face watching a movie that her son made, the the one that we hear the father character encouraging him to make in that clip we heard. And we don't see what she sees on screen. We only see her reaction to it as the light flickers on her face. And to me, that was just, that was the tour de force part of the, of the movie. But I think that if you if you have a, a problem with um, sincerity cringe, <laughs> this movie may get you in parts because it's a very mm. um, it's very much you know Steven Spielberg laying his heart open to you and you know as he himself would no doubt own he is something of a sentimentalist. But the the stuff that really got me in this Fableman's movie are the moments when you think it's going to veer that way and it veers another way, which has to yes. do with the mother usually. And then one incredible scene that I still haven't completely unpacked where he makes a movie about his high school bully, right? Mm-hmm. I, that whole section of the movie is, is quite astonishing because you think it's going one way and then it veers in a completely other direction. Uh, something we also haven't mentioned about this movie at all and that I think you guys will agree with me on is that it's funny. You know, it's not it's not yeah. portentous. It's and if it does have that buildings roman structure, it's a kind of comic buildings roman. Yes. So you know, there's lots of of sequences that are just in there for a laugh. J- Judd Hirsch comes in for a one scene cameo that's hilariously funny. So if people go into it thinking, you know, this is just all going to be about a man unpacking his own painful childhood and holding it up before our eyes. No, that's happening, but it's happening in a very Spielbergian atmosphere of, you know, um, of mischief and playfulness. Right. For me, it's a movie that is, I mean, the opening scene of, of the whole movie is little Steven Spielberg, little Sammy Fableman 
waiting in line to see his very first movie, which he's afraid of. And his parents are kind of telling him what it's going to be like. And his dad, who's this computer scientist, is explaining persistence of vision to him. Uh, the film goes through the projector 24 frames a second, but the brain only sees 15, blah, blah, blah. And then his mother turns to him and says, movies are dreams that you never forget. <laughs> um, and that sort of, you know, Apollonian Dionysian tendency is like woven all through it. Um, I think it's why the movie for me kind of feels at war with itself in a certain way and doesn't totally cohere, but I think it's also fascinating. And it definitely is the kind of movie that like will make you look at every other Spielberg movie differently when you go back and watch them. And I think it's, yes. it's you know very much worth it for that. Um, it doesn't all come together for me. I think there are some amazing scenes in it and some things that totally don't work, but um, I would urge people, especially since it just had its opening weekend at the box office and flopped, um, to go see it either in theaters or I think it comes out on uh, Peacock or something in a few weeks. It's definitely a, a movie to catch up with at some point. Sam, I just have to ask you, this is one of the things I would ask you over our Michelle Williams bourbon. It, do you think another actress could have done that same role as written better than she did? I mean, do you, in other words, did, is your reservation more about the character or about her performance of it? I, I mean, it might be a little bit of both. I mean, I, it's... I inevitably find myself kind of putting this up against Armageddon Time, which is a, another movie that I love from this year, which is another sort of, you know, Jewish filmmakers uh, coming of age story. Um, and I just think of like, you know, Anne Hathaway as the mom in that one. I feel like she in a way might've been able to do this kind of mother who is self-theatricalizing, but also kind of very fragile underneath it in a way that felt a little more natural. I just feel like Michelle Williams is, I mean, I think, you know, I said before, she's one of the greatest actors of her generation. I think like her performance in uh, Kelly Reichardt's Wendy and Lucy is like an absolute totem for me. And I think like that stillness is kind of what I really value in her. Um, and the more sort of like performative stuff is just, I don't, that does not feel like her wheelhouse to me. Gosh, I mean, I, I did have the opposite reaction. I mean, I guess where I come out on this movie is if someone were to say to you, Steven Spielberg has made a deeply felt autobiographical movie and the kind of algebraic abstractions that would immediately occur, occur to you, it's going to be somewhat self-regarding, it's going to be very sentimental, like deeply, suspiciously nostalgic and um, didactic. All of them are true enough but within that, he has done something very, very human, very extraordinary in my estimation. And as to her performance, again, there's no the Gustavus, right? There's no arguing. If if I, it, I certainly see it as a performance that would divide moviegoers. And Sam, you and I just went in totally, you know, opposite directions. But one thing I would say is that in terms of the way the character is written, there's a moment in the trailer which gives nothing away to say where she's sort of dancing by firelight in a in a see-through, um, effectively translucent dress. And in the trailer, it's like very bad Spielbergian. Like it seems larded over with, um, you know, fake imagination and, and, and nostalgia. In the movie, it's actually a deeply, deeply equivocal, like excruciatingly equivocal moment. It, it embarrasses like, like her daughter to no end. Like the, 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 the daughter wants to stop it desperately. And, and and I won't give anything away, but like every piece of that sequence is actually bravura and very precisely felt. In fact, it's not loaded over. It's 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 a, as much about the mother's attempt to create a moment like that, and and the child's embarrassment and suspicion over it. Possibly, I mean, that's not necessarily how Sammy feels in that moment, but he certainly has mixed feelings. And and to me, that was the movie that really surprised me. So it was sort of going in with the expectation of didacticism, et cetera, self-importance, and discovering these deep crannies of human feeling um, and and highly specific truth-telling. I mean, that, that to me was sort of, frankly, it was kind of mind-blowing. So anyway, it is the Fablemans. It divided us in interesting ways, to put it mildly. So here I say, seek it out. I, I think especially because it's slightly hard to find that's a sign that he did something unexpected. Um, go see it and tell us what you thought. All right, let's, let's move on. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we discuss business. Dana, what, the, what do we got this week? 
Stephen, first of all, it's getting close to the end of the year 2022, which means that it's time to start getting ready for our annual listener call-in episode. This is a tradition we have that we end the year with where for our last show of the year, we have listeners send us whatever questions they want about culture, about our own personal lives <laughs> to a degree, and whatever else they want. And we choose our favorite questions and answer them during a special episode. So if there's anything you've been dying to ask us, call us and leave a message at 908 977-6807. Once again, that number is 908-977-6807. Or as always, you can email your question to us at culturefest at slate.com. And we'll compile those questions, choose our favorites, and get ready to answer them on a show. We don't know exactly yet when this episode will air, but it will be toward the end of the year and we will keep you all posted so you can remember to tune in. In the meantime, start thinking about questions to send in to us or call in. Our second item of business today is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. Today, we are answering a listener question, very recent one, from a listener named Emily, who writes, Is there a song that instantly makes you cry, no matter how hard you try to control it? She goes on to say the three songs that make her cry are Landslide by Stevie Nicks, Return to Pooh Corner by Kenny Loggins, I love that one, and This Woman's Work by Kate Bush. Uh, we were tossing this around in prepping the episode and realized that we all had multiple song titles that make us cry, so we're going to talk about music and tears for our Slate Plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that discussion at the end of this show, and if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right, well, Kumail Nanjiani stars as Soman Banerjee. When we first meet him, he's a gas station attendant in L.A., uh, extremely enterprising, uh, patient, painstaking, ambitious. And we soon learn that he saved up just enough to start his own business. This becomes an ill-fated backgammon club. This is his idea of sort of starting a Hefner-esque gentlemanly club for playing backgammon. It predictably totally bombs. Um, but then we follow through a bunch of twists and turns by which it becomes the multi-billion dollar beefcake empire known as Chippendales. Welcome to Chippendales is on Hulu. It stars in addition to Nanjiani. Juliette Lewis, uh, the ever-amazing Murray Bartlett as Nick DeNoia, the choreographer whose creative input transformed the business. In this scene, uh, Banerjee, who's pl- uh, changed his name to Steve, meets with Denoya and asks him for his help in his new business and he thinks Nick is just the guy. Let's uh, let's listen up. The reason I wanted to meet with you was I was hoping to get your thoughts. My thoughts? On the show, you called it a flaming pile of trash. Well, I wouldn't say that. That it's trash. That it's a show. <sighs> a show has choreography, production values, narrative. What you have is a, is a, it's a crass spectacle, a cheap gimmick devoid of the slightest hint of stagecraft or professionalism. What would you do? Oh, to turn it into something half decent? An actual show that maybe could last? Yes. Well, I'm not fucking telling you. <laughs> People pay big bucks for my Sam, let me start with you. Uh, Oh, Murray Bartlett's so good, right? I mean, the best thing about White Lotus, turns out, is the best thing about Welcome to Chippendales. We'll get there. What'd you make of it overall? I mean, well, I I do love that Murray Bartlett performance. And I have to say that even after, you know, sitting through the credits and in the first episode, uh, Camille Nanciani and Murray Bartlett are the only people who are kind of listed at at the top. Um, And I sort of kept waiting for Murray Bartlett to show up, even as that character, Nick (laughs) DeNoya, turns up on the scene. And then I had to be like, oh, right. That's him. Like, that's the sort of, you know, that's the Australian guy from the White Lotus. I mean, it's a really, like, immersive performance in that way. So I love him in this. Um, You know, the the series itself, I I kind of have mixed feelings about. I I wanted something a little more, um, frankly, in the vein of Magic Mike, um, you know, a little more celebratory. Um, The fact that the source material for this is a book called uh, Deadly Dance, The Chippendales Murders, gives you a sense of the kind of cautionary tale angle that it's going in with. Um, There is uh, a a murder at the end of the first episode, which has a really tenuous connection to this story. And I'm not entirely uh, crazy about how they use, but I think it's really sort of pushing in that direction that, you know, Oh, yes, women get to go and have this good time, but there's this like seedy underbelly that's eventually going to consume them all. Um, And that just that feels a little played out to me. 
Yeah, Dana, uh, I wouldn't describe uh, freshness to this product as good as uh, Bartlett is and and Nanjiani and various other people. Would you would you make of it? Yeah, I mean, this has, I guess, a little bit of the prestige TV problem. There's there's good stuff, but it takes a while to get to it. And and as an avowed preferer of the movie format to the TV format in general, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the first episode is the worst, and it really does get better after that. There's a red herring murder, as Sam indicated at the beginning of the first episode, that has nothing to do with the rest of the show and sets a tone that is not actually typical of the show. And if I had only watched the pilot and not had access to the rest, I probably would not have kept watching. But that entirely drops out after the first episode, and we join, you know, Steve Banerjee, Soman Banerjee's story. And I thought it picked back up again. And in fact, it isn't just Murray Bartlett, who I agree is extraordinary. He's really, really good and so, so different than in White Lotus and really kind of a, an Emmy-worthy performance. But there's a lot of other small performances that are great. I mean, when Juliette Lewis enters the scene, which mm-hmm. is toward the yeah. end of the second episode, there's a new burst of energy. Anywhere Juliette Lewis goes, right, there's some kind of an edgy, strange kind of energy that she brings. And then in the third episode, Andrew Randalls comes in, who I have, I've seen in person when I saw Hamilton for the first time. He was singing King George. And I've seen the way that he can just grab an audience and hold you in his hand. And he does that in his little a few scenes in the third episode. So I'm excited that he's going to be part of the show. Um, so it's it's got a slow rolling energy that I, I kind of enjoy in spite of, yes, that cautionary tale side that Sam mentioned. Like this is this is, is not going to sort of give you that gleeful rush that a, a male stripper scene in Magic Mike is going to give you. Um, mm-hmm. But it has a lot going for it. I, I, I feel like the writing so far has not quite been up to the uh, the performances, but everybody seems really all in. And I respect that. Mm, interesting. I mean, I found the writing to be perfectly honest. I watched the first two episodes. I found the writing so excruciating. The thought of moving on to a third was just impossible. I, I it it often felt to me like a a like a true crime podcast can get away with this, no disrespect, but it can have a kind of okay. Here's the real story behind Chippendales. You didn't know that it was filled with all this sleaze tastic, you know, byways and double dealings, and oh my god, it was connected to the you know Dorothy Stratton murder suicide right like holy moly like um and and there is a way in which when you're doing true crime and it doesn't feel overly fictionalized just sort of you know my favorite murder right just kind of it's like literally re- practically reading freaking wikipedia entries on these fantastical things that actually happen in real life i felt like they went from that kind of raw material as sam says this true crime uh, non-fiction book to a script in like in like they literally put like a a freaking stove timer, you know, tick tick tick, and said, "All right, you have you have an hour to produce this. Go!" And it, it just it the only character I cared about at all was was Nick Denoya, who's fascinating because he's a portrait in closeted loneliness, and you know, talk about a creatively thwarted human being, and he finds this odd canvas upon which to express himself, which are. Which are, this was a totally, I mean, the, the, Sam, the show does an admirable job of telling you this was a completely unprecedented concept, right? I mean, no wonder a billion dollars lurked beneath it is the idea that men would strip for women was, was at the time virtually unthinkable. I mean, they may play that up a little here, but, but was, it, was, it was unexpected to put it mildly. And he turned it from something kind of retail storefront uh, he gave it choreography and style, and that was really what made the business. That story is a fascinating one, right? I mean, I will definitely. I'll go back to some more of the episodes. I, I, I gather there's one in which Andrew Rennell sings a song from Stephen Sondheim's Company. Uh, so I'm definitely mm. going to watch up until that point. Um, <laughs> but I do think, I mean, Steve, you mentioned sort of the just that this could be done as a podcast. I mean, and the thing is, there actually is a podcast of this uh, story called Welcome to Your Fantasy uh, that came out. Yeah. Uh, last year, kind of right as they were starting production on this. And I don't want to be, you know, reductive and say like, well, that one was, you know, uh, like hosted and, and produced by women. And this one is, was created in first couple episodes directed by men. And that's why, you know, the podcast version is sort of more fun and celebratory because Magic Mike was also written and directed by men. And that's like a totally glorious spectacle, but there is um, you know, I, th- I feel like you're missing a piece of the Chippendales story if you're not um, 
getting into that that aspect of it, uh, you know, and, and I feel like this kind of the show, you know, tells us that women are going well, but it doesn't really like give us the the characters that are doing that so much. Um, Juliet right. Lewis really does bring enormous life to it. She is the costume designer, fictional character, but she is the one who comes in and designs the, the breakaway pants, which become, you know, so iconically associated with this. And she is, you know, kind of over the top, um, lusty, like huge personality that the show yes. really needs more of. Um, and it, it doesn't have. Dana, as, as pleased as I was, at your response to the fable moons, which really echoed and ratified my own. Um, I'm surprised to discover it sounds like you are going to follow this one to the very bottom of its barrel. You were really watching every one of these episodes. I don't know. It's, it's eight episodes, right? I've already watched almost three and yeah, I might, I might keep letting it unfurl. I think a little bit like the last Hulu show we talked about reboot. It's, it's not a perfect show, but it's, it's pretty good at, baiting the hook so that you want to watch the next episode. And I'm just interested in Murray Bartlett's career now. I want to mm, see what Murray true. Bartlett does next because he is Everything. such a shapeshifter, right? I mean, he brings a completely different energy to this than to White Lotus. And in both cases, he's a supporting character. That's the most interesting thing about the show. Um, and that in itself will get me through. Plus, there's lots of naked dudes doing <laughs> insane dances, wearing nothing but a collar and a bow tie, which, you know, that's just good in and of itself. That's good TV. Sam, how far are you going with this? Uh, I'm going up to the Sondheim song, and then we'll see. All right. Well, I had that wonderful revelatory moment where you're like, wait a minute, that's the guy from White Lotus? Five question marks. Um, he's wonderful. He's worth the price of admission here alone. So I guess I'll I'll crawl back to it. But uh, anyway, all right. It's called Welcome to Chippendales. It's on Hulu. Uh, again, we're like kind of split. Um, so we love to hear what you guys thought. So shoot us an email. All right, let's move on. Okay, on to the saga of Taylor Swift and Ticketmaster. As background to this story, uh, you guessed it, it's your supposed democracy acting in the interests of the already rich and powerful. Specifically, the Justice Department, the the wonderfully misnamed Justice Department, approved a $2.5 billion merger in 2010 that allowed Ticketmaster and Live Nation to become uh, one gigantic ticket selling and promoting behemoth and then it's that new company live nation entertainment that is basically sam an uh, entertainment world octopus and sam they effectively they exert an inordinate amount of control over fans access to especially your big name uh live entertainment musical entertainment like taylor swift everything crashed Prices got way out of control. I heard prices as high as whatever it was, 25000 and up for Taylor Swift tickets. And this is really the story of the Titanic and the iceberg and the twain finally meeting. I think if there's one thing you don't want to take on in the world of entertainment, um, it is Taylor Swift and especially her fans. So I'm curious – what you make of this story and whether we're at a moment of reckoning or whether we'll go back to business as usual. Well, I mean, having spent um, several hours on several consecutive days trying and eventually succeeding um, to get Taylor Swift tickets, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, this reckoning is way overdue. I wanted it to happen, um, you know, back when Pearl Jam tried to take them on in the early 90s. You know, the, the merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation is just... I mean, it's such a joke. It's, I mean, it makes so obvious that there's basically no such thing as antitrust law in the U.S. Um, the effect of that was people pointed out, well, maybe it's bad to like have the biggest uh, ticket provider and the biggest controller of all the biggest venues to be the same company. Won't that be anti-competitive? And basically, Live Nation promised not to use their influence to uh, their size to influence people to you know, take deals and have to use their venues. Um, and they broke that promise. They made another promise in 2019 to do the same thing. They're clearly bringing that again. Um, you know, it took, uh, apparently, there was already sort of a DOJ investigation going on, but it kind of became public after this whole Taylor Swift fiasco. So it really kind of can't happen too soon. I mean, it's just, um, I'm not comfortable saying how much 
I ended up paying for three Taylor Swift tickets, but I will say that we paid $350 in service charges. Oh, sick. Uh, just to Ticketmaster. Yes. So that's for the worst service imaginable, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So, like, it's just, I mean, they've been a joke for a long time. I hate the fact that, um, you know, touring is the only way that musicians can reliably make money now. Ticketmaster is taking this huge tranche off the top of that to provide terrible service. Um, it just makes my blood boil in about a hundred different ways. Yeah, well, uh, Dana, this is the story of um, uh, of two neoliberal behemoths, Taylor Swift and uh, and Monopoly pricing power. Uh, arriving uh, at an exp- galvanic moment. The sentence that I find most revealing and depressing is this supposedly renewed Justice Department inquiry, and I'll quoting now, reprises the focus, reprises the focus, what a wonderful piece of Orwellian doublespeak, of the 1994 probe inspired by Pearl Jam. That's how long strategic looking the other way of our government has been going on um, in the face of a screamingly unfair monopoly. Um, where, tell me what, what your um, reading about this subject has made you think and feel. Yeah, I mean, this to me was a real expose of a subject because I don't do a lot of, of pricing of tickets for big pop concerts like that. I mean, I've never had that experience that Sam mentions of, you know, being caught in the web of 21st century Ticketmaster And then when I started reading about some of the practices in the industry, my jaw was dropping. I mean, it's not just the vertical monopoly of Live Nation and Ticketmaster being in bed together, Mm -hmm. but the fact that I guess this is about a decade ago that Ticketmaster implemented dynamic pricing, (laughs) right? Which is clearly something uh, influenced by the gig economy and, and Uber and Lyft and these services that just decide to change their prices based on demand from day to day. And uh, and that experience I have had and gone insane with, that experience of, you know, a a car ride that a few hours before cost you one amount suddenly costs you twice that much of an amount because there are a lot of people who want a car at that moment. So it really is just the the unfettered marketplace, (laughs) right? Gouging customers for as much as they can possibly get. And the idea that there isn't any such thing anymore as some sort of governmental intervention in those those gouging practices is is just absolutely infuriating and it would make me feel like that's it i boycott ticketmaster i am just skipping every big concert for the rest of my life because i can't be treated this way right I do think Steve made an important point there in saying that this is about two neoliberal institutions and not just one because ticketmaster is horrible everybody hates them they're also Part of their job now is to like take the flack for artists like Taylor Swift and like Bruce Springsteen, who has um, you know instituted this dynamic pricing on his last tour, so that tickets were going at, at first sale and not even in the sort of secondary market, which Ticketmaster also controls to some extent. Um, tickets were going for upwards of five thousand dollars for his shows. Um, you know, working man's hero Bruce Springsteen. So you know, the artists are opting into this stuff because it's money on the table, you know, for the Taylor Swift show face value, there were tickets that were the highest tickets were, I think $499, something like that. But a lot of those were only available as part of these like VIP packages where you get a bunch of junk for like another $400 on top of that. So they're Mm -hmm. $900 tickets and not $500 tickets. Obviously Taylor Swift's getting a cut of that, that she's opting into that system. So the idea that like Swifties are going to rise up and, and take down monopoly capitalism. I mean, and I say this as a, a Taylor Swift fan, but like, you know, being a Taylor Swift fan is sort of opting into monopoly capitalism in the first place. So you can't really um, be both of those things. Beautifully said. Thank you. So a couple things that that I would say, Dana, just a slight emendation to your, you know, comment, um, which is that it's really the unfettered marketplace, once again, acting as a fig leaf or camouflage for the very fettered marketplace. I mean, in fact, if it were operating as a market, and I am not, believe me, I do not believe in the great, you know, golden calf of the of the free market at all. But if it were at least an, a fully operating competitive market with multiple players, and no one had monopoly power, you know, at least in a dynamic pricing environment with transparency, uh, you know, multiple multiple providers, um, y- you would get something like a competitive price, and that would be okay, I think. And part of the thinking, let's at least follow the original logic and then see how it's been corrupted. The original thinking is a, a bunch of different things. One is that 
in the age of the internet, you had a bunch of secondary sales markets that were being gamed by effectively online scalpers. So they would go and buy up huge blocks of tickets, control it. They bore no relationship to the venue, to the artist, or to Ticketmaster. They would just get a, control these huge blocks and then create a, a secondary market that they largely controlled. Was very, you know, pretending to be like, oh, you can't get these anymore. So this is this great service, and all of that market was being captured by effectively these these scalp, you know, outlets. Um, that was a terrible practice, and and correcting for it made a lot of sense. As to Springsteen, I mean, I think the working class hero thing is. You know the ways in which he's travestied that over the over the decades deserve calling out. I will say that if it were a fully functioning dynamic marketplace and the additional amount of money was just a competitive price among fans, what they're willing to pay, what they're willing to bid. I mean, we can go to the deeper causes of inequality that allow for someone to lay out fifty grand for their kid's fourteenth birthday to see Taylor Swift. That's revolting, and I'd like to kill that at, at its source. But if the, if we live in such a world and we can't change everything about it overnight, the artist maybe ought to capture some of that or a lot of that, if not all of that gain. So I understand why the artist then tries to get in and say, okay, well, if this is what it's going for and I'm getting X percent, and this is my, I don't make any money off of my recorded music anymore thanks to Spotify, you know, why should I get a percentage of a $300 face value only to discover that it's being sold for twenty, thirty thousand dollars. I mean, the same thing is in the art world, and I think we probably see some dignity in an impoverished artist painting uh, a, a work that then goes on to be sold for God knows twenty, forty, sixty million dollars. Shouldn't the artist participate in that ridiculous market? Some uh, markup, somebody is going to. So I think the artist getting a piece of that isn't really such a terrible thing. Traditionally, they don't. They don't see any of that gain. So so there's that. The problem, of course, is that starting with Reagan, unsurprisingly, we got nothing, you know, it may be that a full free market revolution would deliver a panacea as promised by Reagan. A half a free market revolution delivers the nightmare society that we all live in today. Because what you get is all of these bid-ups, uh, but they're not actually because of a functioning market. They're because of monopoly power. So it wasn't just that Reagan slashed regulation. It's that under his auspices, the Justice Department became a look-the-other-way uh, branch of the government that allowed for um, the creation of monopolies, i.e. pretty radically non-market conditions. And lo and behold, the consumer and very often the creative artist gets screwed. So that's we're how we've arrived at this moment. So the question is, and I think Sam is right about this, is to what extent are artists like Taylor Swift and Bruce Springsteen, who are glow after all global brands, they are worth a half a billion, a billion more dollars themselves. They themselves are creations of the neoliberal nightmare that we all live in. Um, clearly what we need is a regulatory state to step in and at a bare minimum act as a guardian to this supposed marketplace. <laughs> not a bunch of individual artists who are suddenly asked to choose between their own interests and pocketbooks and the public good. Like, what kind of a society we've cre- have we created that is now up to Taylor Swift and her conscience to overcome, you know, 50 years of neoliberalism? It's patently absurd. Yeah, I mean, it, it ends up being such, so much a bigger question than just this question, right? I yes. mean, it's sort of like whatever happened to antitrust lawsuits, right? Whatever yeah. happened to the government's role in keeping capitalism from running completely rampant? And I don't know. I don't. I don't have an answer to that. It, I agree that it's it's the tragedy of our time that this is all up to individual consumer decisions or individual artist decisions, you know, rather than there being any recourse whatsoever to some kind of regulatory entity. So I don't know. I it, it, it made me so enraged researching this, this topic that it made me want to somehow burn down the entire music industry. <laughs> and, uh, and that's coming from, you know, as I said before, like somebody who is, is pretty out of touch with what it is to be a consumer of pop music. It's supposed to be pop music, right? I mean, whether or not you describe yourself as a working class hero, as a singer, it should be 
at, to some degree accessible to go and hear live music in a giant stadium, you know, without paying your entire monthly salary for the tickets. It, it is absolutely absurd that that's yeah. what the music industry has become. And the fact that as of this morning, I looked at the the show we're going to in May, and as of this morning on StubHub, the ninety nine dollar seats in the upper decks are going for a minimum of seven hundred and fifty. That that's just bad. That's not yeah, that's not popular. This is like Fall of Rome type arrangements and something needs to change. Right. Yeah. There's a difference between something being a special treat that you blow some money on for your kid and, you know, not being able to pay your mortgage or buy food because you went to see Taylor Swift sing a few songs. Right. Is it Spring Breaker Taylor Swift concert? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, thankfully, we didn't confront that dilemma in our household. All right. Well, this is one that like we'd love to hear some of your rage in order to stoke ours and we'll climb that unhappy ladder together uh listeners so shoot us an email about this did you pay you know if you paid up for this or on and on we'd love to hear about it okay let's uh, let's move on ah right now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse dana what do you have Steve Sam actually spoiled my endorsement during our Chippendale segment. I was going to endorse and recommend this podcast, this nine-part podcast about the Chippendale story. If you want to hear the true, unfictionalized version of the seedy origin of Chippendales, and I've not heard the entire podcast yet. I'm a few episodes in. I was listening to it as as research for the show, but I think that it it arguably handles the story, well, both, you know, more truthfully, obviously, because there's not any need for compression or inventing characters, um, but also, I think, more, maybe more entertainingly and in a tighter way than than the uh, the Hulu show does. So the podcast is available. I see it on Spotify. I'm sure it's any place you can get podcasts. It is a Spotify original podcast, and it's called Welcome to Your Fantasy. Um, yeah, and you get to hear a, a historian um, who has researched this really extensively uh, unpack it episode by episode. That sounds amazing and exactly what this show made me pine for. So I'm going to seek that out. Um, Sam, what do you have? I am recommending A Christmas Carol. Um, And of course, I need to specify which of the 9,000 versions I'm talking about. Uh, But what I mean is a version that is currently on Broadway. Uh, It is a one-man show performed by the actor Jefferson Mays. Uh, I have to admit that Jefferson Mays is sort of an acclaimed, uh, award-winning theater actor. uh, But i basically knew him primarily as the sort of the character daddy's boy from unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is this really sort of goopy classic Hollywood uh, parody. Um, And I went into this, you know, the description that I read was, okay, he plays, you know, 50 characters in the show, including a potato. And I was like, well, this sounds kind of, you know, like a fun lark. Maybe I'll take my mom. We'll go on a Friday night. Um, I went and it actually like this really kind of staggeringly theatrical Victorian ghost story. Mm. You know, the, the first clue is that it starts with the opening line of Dickens' original text, which frankly I had not read before, which is Marley was dead to begin with. Um, you know, the house lights are down, and then Jefferson Mays just kind of slips seamlessly into all these characters. It's not really a stunt. It's like he's just telling the story. So he's just mm. changing characters as the story changes points of view. Um, but it, it's with just a sort of a few theatrical tools in this really incredible performance, it really just kind of shapeshifts. It's actually pretty intense and scary in a way that sort of reminds you why this story has endured for so long, which almost no other version I've ever seen does. Um, it's always like, why, why are there so many Christmas carols? And this is, this sort of answers that question among other things. So it is up on Broadway, I believe through the first of the year at least. And I really do recommend it. Oh, my God. I, I I can't help myself. I have to say, I read it last year or during one of the COVID Christmases to my kids. It is an extraordinary piece of popular literature. I mean, it is it deserves to have endured as much as it did. It's it's weirdly powerful. And um, it, it just in, I, anyway, I, I, I recommend that to you is 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 it's a it's such a worthy piece of Dickens. Um and, you know, there's also this crazy argument that he sort of invented Christmas with it, that it wasn't necessarily celebrated in quite the way it has been since because of the popularity of Christmas Carol. On and on and on. I, Can I, I jump I'm in with my tiny fan. Christmas Carol 
recommendations since we're talking oh about the God, story. Yes. First of yeah. all, that Broadway show sounds great, Sam, and I may take my, my daughter to see it because we're both huge fans of Christmas Carol, but I read it every year and I watch the movie every year. It is one of my mm. favorite stories in the world. And Which I version? Just, Which movie? The Alistair Sim version. Yeah, Gotta yeah, be yeah, the yeah, Alistair Sim yeah. version. That's just the ultimate Scrooge. Yeah. The ultimate, yes, ultimate Scrooge. I'm I sure agree. I've talked about it on this show before. And in fact, I'm doing a guest spot on this CNN documentary this this season about um, Christmas movies and Christmas TV shows. And I talk about it some and about how Alistair Sim is the greatest Scrooge ever. But I also wanted to endorse, I have two Christmas traditions related to Christmas Carol. One is watching that movie as close to Christmas Eve as possible every year. And the other is listening to Tim Curry read it on the audiobook version, the Un- unabridged audiobook of Christmas Carol read by Tim Curry which I try to wrap presents to every year and it's just a fantastic reading so funny and scary and dry and he just gets every single um, every every little nuance of the story including just the the beautiful sentiment you know the the, the nostalgia and he's the best Tim Curry reading Christmas Carol okay I have happened across the all-time greatest factoid here we got to keep going with this for a second you're telling me that Alistair Sim is the actor in the great um live live action you know the film Scrooge which is just like um you know a total masterpiece he voices uh Ebenezer Scrooge in one of my favorite versions of a Christmas Carol which is a Chuck Jones produced animated Christmas Carol that I think you can find on YouTube that is so haunting and weird. It is a beautiful, like, and it's very short. It's like 20, I think 20 minutes long, but it's really haunting and very disturbing. I mean, it's very much about like the ill conscience of this human being, the hoarder, you know, the the person of, you know, no generosity of emotion or money. And it's, it's just fabulous. I just had no idea that that was the same uh, person in both. Anyway, all right. Uh, I... Uh, I have to ask, do you guys know this um, singer-songwriter Jessica Pratt? Nope. I do not. Ah, okay, a whiff, an ofer. Um, She's very, very highly regarded, and I've wanted very badly to connect with her music. She has a really interesting, slightly like, almost like it's being played to you over a Victrola, anachronistic sounding to me voice, the oldie voice, singing style, even though she's contemporary. And I, I had I had trouble, almost like Sam with Michelle Williams. Like, it's like, I, I, I admire this. I want to love it. Why don't I love it more? I can't get beyond what strikes me as possibly an affectation. I finally broke through. Listen to the song, Back Baby. And there's a comma between back and baby. melody there's something totally haunting and wonderful about it and then very quickly to add to that i've discovered the a tenor saxophonist ike quebec like the province i'd never heard of him before just absolutely digging uh his album blue and sentimental it's just it's every bit as good as that sunny red record so check it out sam what a fun show what a really fun show thanks for coming on oh thanks so much Dana, a really good one. Uh, always a pleasure, but um, something especially, uh, especially great today. Yeah, you know it's a good show when, with every single topic you're saying. But one more thing. Wait, do we have time? One more question. <laughs> <laughs> I had so much to say about everything this week. Yeah, it makes for a tough edit, but, you know, um, Cameron's a superhero in that regard. All right, well, you'll find uh, links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the uh, composer Nicholas Bertel. Our research assistant is Jessica Balderrama. And our producer is the aforementioned Cameron Drews. For Sam Adams and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.
Hello and welcome to the Slut Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. This week we're doing a listener question, which we've been on a roll of getting good ones lately. And thanks to all who have sent them in. Uh, This one comes from a listener named Emily who wanted to ask us about songs that make you cry. Her examples of three songs that make her cry every time. Landslide by Stevie Nicks. Return to Pooh Corner by Kenny Loggins. This is now bookmarked in my Spotify. I need to see if Kenny Loggins sets me off. And This Woman's Work by Kate Bush. Love that song. Mm. Um, So... Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I'm hosting this time because I don't, I don't have to answer this one first. You guys can expose <laughs> your tender bits and then we'll, we'll get over to me. Uh, Steve, I'm going to start with you because I know you're a sentimentalist. Can you give us, oh. let's start with just one. Maybe we'll do a, another round or two, but start with, with one song you can think of that sets you off every time. I mean, can I just preface this a little bit by saying, I can't say songs make me cry I in and of themselves. What I will say is that there are some songs that are so precious to me and so emotionally powerful that I regulate how often I listen to them in order to preserve that. I will go years without listening to the Nick Drake album, uh, Pink Moon, you know, years without listening to Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, right? Like I just, they are so in danger of becoming it, the world making them like has already made them iconic and, and which is on the way to destruction already um and and i refuse to participate in that and then just every now and then i'll listen and the effect is preserved if i had to start with a single song let me go with one unexpected and one expected and i'll start with the unexpected and we could turn to sam but talk to me of bendicino by the mcgarrigal sisters is there's just a moment where the har- harmonies kick in in the chorus and it's sort of a song about how just the, the sun rises on California in a different way Talk to me of Mendocino Closing my eyes I hear the sea Must I wait Must I follow Won't you say I just I find that song incredibly powerful every time I hear it and it just makes me want to go to Mendocino even though nothing else about the world myself or Mendocino does. Sam, what about you? What's what's on your weeping playlist? Oh my gosh, I have so many answers to this, so I don't want to disobey <laughs> disobey your instructions, but I mean music makes me cry in general and sometimes it's subject matter but can it also just be like you know, the resolution from a minor key to a major key or a chord change or something like it just unleashes a lot. And especially I like to sing along a lot and often like just sort of the act of, you know, loosening your jaw to hit a note or something can just, you know, start the tears welling up or something. Harmonies are, are very powerful. I agree with you on that, Steve, as well. So it, it's, you know, there are a tremendous number of answers to this. Often those cries are not sort of very profound. And it, it's one of the things that make me think that crying is not like necessarily a great metric of artistic worth because I'm, I'm pretty easy in that way. And sometimes it's just cause you know, like a little limbic response is being triggered in my brain. Um, mm. But um, I mean, one that has been very reliable in this respect for me um, over decades now, you know, since I was a teenager is uh, dire straits brothers in arms um, that was that was true already before it was used, I think, in the finale of some episode of, of The West Wing, when I was just like, oh, well, I'm dead now. Like, this, <laughs> this just killed me. It's got mm-hmm. this big sort of orchestral swell in addition to this, you know, sort of sad story about war and people dying and stuff. But I honestly think it's more just the tenor of, of the music than the words that really gets to me. Um, so, yeah, that that's one, um, which I guess we can play. I've witnessed your son.
I was thinking about this because I really appreciate that the listener, Emily, who wrote in, disclosed her embarrassing crying song, because I presume that the Kenny Loggins <laughs> song is probably that she would not argue that it's, you know, at the top of the pantheon of musical sophistication, but it still makes her cry. So I will start with a very corny song that has always made me cry, in part because I have a childhood memory of listening to it. I think I was going to sleep and my parents had the radio on and this song came on and I just realized how incredibly sad it was. Even though it is completely a song about adulthood and looking back on childhood, I was a child sitting there crying about it. And it's Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man on the phone. When you're coming home, dad, I don't know when. But we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. The song about the son and the dad, right, who are so distant, and then at the end, the son grows up, and he's just as distant with his son. It's this awful ballad of generational <laughs> trauma, and uh, and it gets me every time. Um, so Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin, that would be, I guess, my uh, my Kenny Loggins equivalent. But uh, I'll, on, on my next round, I'll, I'll give you a classier <laughs> option. <laughs> <laughs> Why go classy? I mean, this is this is an occasion to just you know fly that fly that weepy flag, the lacrimose flag, right? I mean, it's like I don't know. All right, so I'm going to go with the obvious choice. Uh, my, uh, my second round is going to be the obvious choice of "Case of You" by Joni Mitchell, which just it's the song and that vocal performance that is truly from Blue, the album Blue. That that original version of it is just. It is as close to a perfect vocal performance on record that I can think of. And it it's just, I don't know, it's just, the, it is the perfect song. I just, there is not a better song ever in the history of recorded music. I really believe that. I would still be on my feet. That is an absolutely gorgeous song. I don't know that it makes me cry, and except in that that whole album does, you know? Yeah, I mean, the thing the I was record, thinking of yeah. in reading this question is that it's more often a whole album <laughs> that makes me cry because mm-hmm. you kind of yeah, have to work up to that point. And we've talked before about, I don't know in what context it came up, but I know I've talked about the Chet Baker album, Let's Get Lost, the soundtrack to the film mm. Let's Get Lost, that was Chet Baker's yeah. last his last album and, you know, really his last time performing, it has to be the whole album. I mean, I, I'm sure that I cry at some point every time I listen to it, but a little bit like you were saying about Nick Drake's Pink Moon, Steve, I save that album, you know, for a certain mm. kind of like rainy staring out the window oh, night, absolutely. you know, and listen to the entire thing. And then at some point or other, it's it's going to get you, but it's a slow build. Um, what about you, Sam? Round two. Yes. Well, in the spirit of embarrassing answers, um, one of mine is uh, Taylor Swift's I've already confessed to being a Swifty on this episode, uh, her song, White Horse. Um, and I do have to specify only the version from the original, Fearless, and not the Taylor's version, version, which is, I think is probably better sung, but lacks the sort of teenage vulnerability that really gets to me. That I'm not a princess, this ain't a fairy tale. I'm not the one you'll sweep off her feet, lead her up the stairwell, this ain't Hollywood. So that one lays me out every time. And the one that really nails me now is, um, I don't think I can get more embarrassing than that, is uh, Wiz Khalifa's See You Again for a very specific reason, which is that is the song that my daughter's fifth grade class the sort of spring the first spring of the pandemic they lost their whole end of elementary school graduation you know concert all that stuff so they did a sort of virtual concert over zoom and they all kind of recorded that song together in their homes and then the, they cut it together I, I just i mean i just lost it and completely started weeping without you my friend and I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. I see you again. We've come a long way, yeah, we came a long way. 
from where we began. You know we started. Oh, I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. Let me tell you. When I see you again. So that song, I mean, most specifically the version performed by my daughter's fifth grade class, but you know, the original, even though it is a poor substitute, will still just lay me out. Oh, okay. Wait a second. I thought of a song that makes me cry every time. Yeah. Every time. It's uh, No Mystery Why, Father and Daughter by Paul Simon. I can't Uh listen to that song. I'm a fucking puddle. I mean, I'm going to read the lyrics. I might start to cry. I'm going to watch you shine, going to watch you grow, going to paint a sign so you always know. As long as one and one is two, ooh, ooh, there will never be a father love his daughter more than I love you. I mean, I heard that song for the first time driving along. I'd had my daughters, you know, had two daughters, and I just died from, like, joy and grief. Oh, my God. I'm gonna watch you shine Gonna watch you grow Gonna paint a sign So you'll always know As long as one and one is two Okay, if we're going to go down the parental path. <laughs> oh, boy. We're, all, we're actually going to be crying by the end of this. Yes. It's not a competition, Dana. Go ahead. It's true. Emily, the listener, has had a true success if we're all just a, a muddle of tears at the end of this segment. So, yeah, well, then if we're going to go the parental route, I guess my song, one of my crying songs, would be My Funny Valentine because my daughter is a Valentine's Day baby. Uh, I used to sing her that song when she was little. Um, and she, then she sang it. She sang it in a concert when she was probably 13 or something like that. Anyway, I'm sure I will have a whole lifetime of hearing my, my funny Valentine in different contexts and crying. But as long as we're going down the parental road, that's going to be my, my second candidate. You're my funny Valentine, sweet comic Valentine. All right, that was such a good question. I feel like we could we could go on and on, and now I want to know from Julia as well what her crying songs are. Oh but, my God, yeah. Um, I want to thank our listener, Emily, for sending in that question, and please take inspiration from her and send us uh, something equally interesting to discuss. So thank you to her, and thank you to all of you for being Slate Plus subscribers. For Steve Metcalf and Sam Adams, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you next week.